0: Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, Because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass... There is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
1: What do you say we start off by praying? Father, you are holy, and you are good, and we are not. And yet here we are, living and breathing before you, worshiping you as your children. Help us to see how we can come before you in grace, how we can come before you to get blessing and worship you for that. God, give us encouragement where we feel discouraged. Give us strength where we feel weak through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. So, When we talk about the gospel, we talk a lot um, in terms of guilt, in terms of you have committed sins, which makes you guilty, and there's a penalty which must be paid, and that Jesus paid that penalty. That's typically like if you see an altar call at an event, that's what they're talking about. This is the gospel. This is one aspect of the gospel. Our text today, it's not that it has nothing to do with guilt, but it deals more with our need for righteousness. On the one hand, we have this need for our sin to be paid for, for these negative marks that we've put on our record to be wiped out. On the other hand, we have a need to have something positive come in, and that positive thing is righteousness. And that's the thing that our text is going to talk to us about today. And so I want to start by recognizing something here. I understand not every church you go to is going to preach like our church does, and there's a good reason for that. Sometimes the gospel message can seem overly theoretical to people. It can seem disconnected from our daily lives, and it can feel like better techniques, better advice, and better tools would be more helpful for us for our day-to-day life than a story about God who became a man, lived a perfect life, died for sin, and rose again. It can seem like that's more practical. After all, I don't really need that message until I die, do I? Isn't the gospel impractical on a day-to-day level? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can admit that sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes the landscape can feel flat, but I want to encourage you that the landscape is not flat if that feeling resonates with you, that the gospel can sometimes feel impractical, I wanna ask you to consider something. What cuts you deeper? Knowing that you have financial problems, behavior problems, logistical problems in your life, or feeling like there's something wrong with who you are? You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not worthy of love. Which feels worse? Which feels more serious? Which one really hurts when you feel it? See, that first realm is the realm of life management. How can I manage my life effectively? We can't do it perfectly, but we at least have some power to move the needle in this realm. We can do some things. But the second realm here is the realm of sin and righteousness, And when things go wrong in this area, we don't just struggle, we despair. We fall apart totally. Sin doesn't just affect us when we die, it's there in the background every day, driving our actions, causing us pain and damage, and causing us to cause pain and damage to the world and the people around us. And so while we are prone to denying our sin, ignoring our sin, we're attempting to manage our sin, none of these methods actually deal with our sin. And it is absolutely vital to know what has made us sinful and what can make us righteous. So today, the good news is that God is telling us just what can deal with our sin and just what can make us righteous. And what's even more amazing is that rather than giving us a way to stop thinking about our sinfulness that we deal with every day, he's anchoring our hope for righteousness in the very real experience that we all have with being sinners. So here's our message Christ's work is stronger than Adam's work. That's our message for today. If it doesn't make sense now, it's going to make sense by the end, hopefully, if I do my job. We'll see. Christ's work is stronger. Adam's work. That's the message. So here are the three points to that message. We are all children of Adam. Therefore, we all stand condemned, but Christ's obedience is stronger than Adam's disobedience. Those are our three points. So let's start with, we are all children of Adam. That's our first point here. So what this text eventually leads to is a promise, but Paul begins the text by anchoring that promise in our undeniable experience. He anchors that promise in the fact that we all sin. And so to understand the logic that Paul uses here, we have to have a basic understanding of what people call covenant theology. And this term, covenant theology, it may be something you've heard of. It may not be something you've heard of. Either way is fine. Um, you won't find it in the Bible. This is not a term that the Bible made up. It's a term that people made up to describe something that's really in the Bible. Does that make sense? It's not in the Bible in terms of the word covenant theology. But the idea is, and so we made a phrase to describe it. So if you want to geek out on this, you certainly can. There's a lot you could do to geek out on covenant theology. Our confessional standard as a church is the second... Uh, London Baptist Confession from 1689, and that would be a good place to go. Uh, There will be a lot of other good places to go, too. But most people, I understand, don't want to geek out on covenant theology. So here's what you should know in order to understand this passage. We believe that God has always dealt with people through covenants. And here's what a covenant is. A covenant is is an agreement between two parties, including obligations that lead to blessing or curse. If the head of the covenant keeps the obligations, then you get blessing. If the head of the covenant breaks the obligations, you get curse. Okay? So that's a covenant. It's an agreement between two parties which include obligations. And those obligations lead either to blessing or to curse. And while we often talk about the old covenant before Jesus and the new covenant after Jesus, the more significant shift and how God relates to people actually came much earlier than the man named Jesus. The most significant shift came much earlier. So, in the Bible, here are the three covenants that we see. The first covenant happened before people, actually, it was just among the Trinity. And that covenant is called the covenant of redemption. This is where God agreed with Himself to redeem sinners. And this is a choice that He made before He created the world. So we call that the covenant of redemption. That's basically the driving force of all of history. Everything that happens serves the covenant of redemption. It's unbreakable. It's an agreement that God made with himself amongst the Trinity. The next covenant is called the covenant of works. And in the covenant of works, this is where God placed Adam as the representative of all humanity in the Garden of Eden. And he promised Adam and Eve that if Adam followed God's rules... To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to refrain from eating from the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil, Adam and Eve and all their descendants, and that's you and me, Adam and Eve and all their descendants would be blessed. If he didn't, what would happen? They would be cursed. You will surely die. So that's the covenant of works. Adam was put on this earth as a representative of all humanity. And the outcome of that was based on whether he kept the covenant or not. That's how God was relating with humanity at this point, based on works. So that's why they call it the covenant of works. The Bible doesn't last very long until Adam breaks that covenant, does it? We only get to chapter three. And the first two chapters are just a reorganizing of the same story. <laughs> it's twice. So we really don't get very far whatsoever. The third covenant we see in the Bible is called the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace. And this covenant was announced when God promised Adam and Eve that even though they broke the covenant of works and brought curse to the earth, a new representative would come after Adam to keep the covenant of works, pay the debt of breaking the covenant of works and bless the earth instead. And so this covenant was fulfilled when Jesus lived, died and rose again. And every human who has ever had a positive relationship with God has done so by the covenant of grace. So we have the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, which was very short, the covenant of grace. So this is the context of verse 12 in our passage for today when it says this, sin came into the world and death through sin. Sin came into the world and death through sin because of the curse of breaking the covenant of works was, was death. Sin came into the world and death through sin. What Paul is talking about here is the result of Adam failing as our representative under the covenant of works. And so while he could have given us blessing through his obedience, instead Adam gave us sin through his disobedience. We call this imputation. That's the theological term for that. It means that Adam's sin was imputed to or given to us by merit of what he did, We were given his sin because he broke the covenant. Here are some verses from our passage for today. Verse 12, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. Verse 15, by the one man's trespass, the many died. And who are the many? The many are everyone who's under Adam. Everyone who's under Adam is every human being. Okay, so by the one man's trespass, it's it's another word for sin, the many died. By the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We know this to be true. Verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Well, any of us who are honest, we know that that's true too. We, the many, are sinners. We do it genuinely, freely. Nobody makes us do it. Why? Because of Adam. So if you're wondering where this stops being technical and theoretical, and jumps into your real life, it's right now. This is where it does that right away. You, you may not realize it because it's not saying, here's how to live. But what is it doing? Adam's failure as our representative brought about the two things we fear more than anything else. The two things that bring us the most distress in life: death and our own sinfulness. Verse 12, the latter half of it says, In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Adam broke the covenant, and as a result, we all became sinners. And as a result, we all commit sin freely. And as a result, we all die. Death spread to all people because all sinned. So you can doubt miracles all day, you can find theology boring all day. You can recoil at the mention of sin all day. But one thing you cannot do with any integrity is deny that you will die or deny that you sin. Some of the truest aspects of our experience, that we will die and that we sin every day. And here's the major problem. No matter how hard you work, how healthy you eat, how much money you have, How much good you do, you cannot stop death. No matter how much self improvement you do, you cannot change your heart. You will still be inclined to sin. And even the outward good that you do will be marred by an inward bentness, rottenness, spoiledness. And so, if there were any self help book that worked as well as we actually need it to, it would be the last one written but instead the shelves are full of these books that tell you how to live your life better. And regularly new ones get written and new ones arrive. And what speaks even more to the great need that we have is that we buy them and we read them with great hope. Why do we have this great hope? Because we know deep down that we have this great need. You can get better, but you can never get good. And this is a major problem. We all have it. It needs a solution. So what will that solution be? We're going to get there. But for now, here's a major takeaway from our first point. Adam's work worked. Remember that. Adam's work worked. So if, if the problem was, a, that, this is why all of this is important. If the problem was that we were using the wrong method, what would the solution be? Get a better stinking method, man. You're doing it wrong. Do it better. If that were the problem, that would be the solution. But if the problem is Adam's sin, if the problem is our hearts, which we cannot change, a better better method is never going to work. And so Adam's work worked. I think we all know this when we're being honest with ourselves. We all know that we sin. Adam's work worked. The outcome may not have been good, but we all know through painful experience that a covenant head's performance has real effects on our lives. Every time we sin, we can be sure of this. So we know that we are all Adam's children. We sinners are all the many under Adam's headship, and that's why we sin. And so that brings us to our second point. Our first point answers the question, why do I sin? Why does it come so naturally to me to be a sinner? Actually, if you've ever heard this this, uh, term, you know, the sins of the Father will be passed down through the generations. Some people have like a really mystical interpretation of that. I think really what it's talking about is this. Because Adam broke the way the world worked. Listen, when for you who have children, when people compare your children to you, are they usually puffing you up or criticizing you? They're probably usually criticizing you on some they're probably making fun of you somehow or, or another, aren't they? When people compare you to your parents, are they usually giving you a compliment? Or are they usually making fun of you? They're usually making fun of you, aren't they? Why? Because we are inclined to take on the vices of our parents. Rather than the virtues. That's just the way it is. Um, doesn't mean we can't take on virtues, but our hearts are just more inclined that way to pick up vice rather than virtue. That's sort of like a microcosm of what happened with Adam. Adam did it for all of humanity, and then it trickles down in this little way that it's like, I'm just more inclined to pick up vice than I am to pick up virtue. So, why do we all sin? Because Adam was an effective head, but not a good one. He failed. And it had a powerful effect. So what impact does that have on us? It's our second point. Therefore, we all stand condemned. Man, that's heavy, isn't it? Nobody likes saying that. That's a hard word. Because of this, we all stand condemned because we act truly as children of Adam. So committing sins and ultimately dying, they're certainly part of the curse of sin, but our sin is not only a problem because of the guilt and shame feelings that it brings. Because we are sinful, we stand condemned before God. Here's where we see this in our passage for today. Verse 16 says, from one sin came the judgment, resulting in what? Condemnation. Verse 18 says this, through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. When we see this, We see that it's not just our sinning. It's not just our behavior that's our biggest problem. But our sinning and our dying, they're the path that we take on our way to our biggest problem, which is living fully in the condemnation that we stand under right now. Sinning and dying aren't the things to solve. They're the evidence that something bigger and something worse is coming. So to use a legal metaphor, right now we've been convicted— but we're not sentenced yet as sinners. The sentencing is still to come. It's been proven. The judge says you are condemned, but the effect hasn't happened yet fully. And so all of us are naturally under condemnation from God as people under Adam and as people who sin regularly. But though we stand condemned today, God has withheld his punishment for a time. Why has he done this? He's withheld his punishment for a time, so those he chose in the covenant of redemption could be gathered in full. That time is not forever. None of us know when it will end for us. So I think that this this realization may actually be behind our constant need to self-justify and to prove that we're enough. We all know that there's a standard that we don't meet. And the consequences of that standard, we all know that they're bigger than we're actually even capable of understanding. There's just this sense, it's bigger and it's worse than what I really know. Nevertheless, we're all aware to some degree, and we just, we can't shake it. But let me ask you a question. How are those efforts going? How well are they working for you? The best they work is through distraction. Distraction. through denial, is through getting enough noise into our brains that we can not deal with this fact. The truth is that we stand condemned because our first father, Adam, brought sin into the world, and we all walk in his footsteps, sinning, dying, and condemned. And so the major takeaway here for this second point is the same as it was for our first point. Adam's work Worked. Adam's work worked. A representative head is not only a figurative head. He didn't just represent us in a figurative way. A representative head brings about real consequences for those he represents. And as truly as we sin because of Adam's disobedience, we also stand condemned because of it. And yet, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. Look at the end of verse 14 here. Here's what it says. He, he being Adam, he is a type of the coming one. He is a type of the coming one. And so, one thing that I love about the Bible is how real it is. um, How real it gets when it offers us hope you ever had somebody like offer you comfort in a really difficult time? And in their comfort, they're basically denying your experience. You know, it, we call that gaslighting now. That's become like a really popular phrase. It's like, that's, it's okay. It's not that bad. The Bible never says that to you. The Bible says, no, 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 it's it's bad. <laughs> you know, it gets pretty real with us. Um It doesn't attempt to deny, reframe our worst fears or our worst experiences. Instead, it acknowledges them. It shows that it has more insight into them than we do, actually. And from this honest place, it speaks hope into our darkest places. And so when Paul wrote this passage, he meant for us to understand two things Adam's obedience and disobedience had a greater effect than ours do. Because he was a type of the coming one. So he wasn't just a typical human being like you and me. He was a type of the one who was to come. His his efforts and his work had an impact that ours will never have. So why did they have such a great effect? Because he was a type of the coming one. But there's another side of that coin of being a type. Adam's obedience and disobedience were not the final word because he's a type. Of the coming one, rather than the coming one himself. So when we look at our sin, when we look at our lives, when we, when we feel just bad about who we are and what we do, we can look at Adam and say, yeah, that story is true. But we don't have to end there. We can look and say, he's a type. He wasn't the final one. He wasn't the only hope for all of humanity. In fact, remember the covenant of redemption came before he ever did. God's plan was already to save sinners, so Adam didn't ruin anything. Adam's obedience and disobedience, they were not the final word because he was only a type of the coming one. In other words, Adam was our first representative, not our final representative. He was our first representative, not our final representative. And that's why when Adam failed to bring us blessing through the covenant of works, a new covenant of grace was announced almost immediately. It really didn't take long at all. When you read the Bible, it's like sin, and then Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with leaves, which didn't work. It was their own works. They already failed that. God says, where are you? Wasn't that gracious of him to approach them as they hid from him? God said, where are you? And then God pronounces curse. He, he doesn't deny his covenant of works. Okay, he pronounces curse, but look what he says. He actually curses the serpent first, who is Satan. Here's what he said. Because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so before God pronounced curse to humanity, he pronounced curse to the serpent, who was Satan. And as he pronounced the curse to the serpent, he actually baked the promise of coming redemption into this curse. What a beautiful thing that is. The curse was coming. God was true to his word. But even as he pronounced it, he baked the promise of redemption into this curse. There was someone coming from the seed of the woman who was gonna stomp that snake's head, crush him, kill him, make him powerless. It turns out that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, but he would earn a bruise in the process. Does that sound like anyone you know? Someone who killed the power of sin and death, but was wounded himself. For the rest of what we call the old covenant, God's people looked forward to the fulfillment of this promise, which was announced in Genesis 3. And for the rest of what we call the Old Covenant, God dealt with his people not based on law. If you've heard that God dealt with his people based on law in the Old Testament, I want to tell you, we don't believe that here. God dealt with his people based on grace. From the moment of this proclamation, God dealt with his people based on grace. There was no other way he could have dealt with people except through grace. But that grace came through faith. And that faith that they had was in the coming one, who is named here, the one of whom our father Adam was only a type, not as powerful, not as great, just a shadow, really. So how was this covenant of grace fulfilled? It was announced, but it wasn't fulfilled until Jesus came, died, resurrected. So why does that matter to us? How is it fulfilled? This brings us to our third point for today. Christ's obedience is stronger than Adam's disobedience. Christ's obedience is stronger than Adam's disobedience. See, the thing about types is that they're both like and unlike the thing that they represent. And both sides of that coin are totally important. Here's what Paul says in verse 15 here. But the gift is not like the trespass. So not like, right? The gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through grace of the the one man, Jesus, overflowed to the many. Why is the gift not like the trespass? Here's why. The trespass, Adam's disobedience, brought death. But the gift, Christ's obedience, it brought life. So he makes this comparison over and over. And in fact, every verse from verse 15 to verse 19 is a comparison of the type of the coming one to the coming one himself. Here's what Adam was like, and here's what we, he did, and here's what the result was, and here's what Christ was like, and here's what he did, and here's what the result was. And we see a likeness and an unlikeness. Here's one thing it says And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Again, he says, if by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And again, he says, so then as, one tresp- as through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there's justification leading to life for everyone. Finally, he says, for justice through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And again, the many, that's everyone who's under Adam. That's all of us. So also, through one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. That's everyone who's under Christ. Everyone born again by grace through faith. That's the the many there. And so it's, it's not unusual for people to wonder why we should be cursed for something that Adam did. That's usually a pretty genuine question. It's an understandable question. But, you know, say, how it, it, it's not only oversimplifying the issue, though, it's actually a purely hypothetical question. You know, um, people accuse a lot of philosophy of being over, overly hypothetical, not having to do with our real lives. I think this question of why should we be cursed for something that Adam did is overly hypothetical even though logically i understand it because here's the thing no amount of arguing with god changes the fact that we are sinners who do things of our own will that deserve condemnation from god and so all we're doing when we argue with why should we be cursed for something that adam did is arguing with the facts of life that we all experience So the fact is that anyone who's honest knows that through one man's disobedience, we really were made sinners. It really happened because we all sin so naturally, so easily, so often. And and so the thing to do at this point is not to argue with things that we really don't understand. It's to deal with what we do, and what we understand here is a real problem. What we should all understand on our own is that we are sinners. And what God has told us is that we are sinners who will die someday because we're children of our first father, Adam. But we know that what Adam did as as our representative was more powerful than anything we do for ourselves. But the point here is that the sword of representative headship, Adam was our representative head. It cuts both ways. If a representative can bring curse, a representative can bring blessing too. That's the way covenants work a failing to keep the obligations brings curses, which are outlined in the covenant, but keeping the obligations brings blessing. So if a representative can bring curse, and we all know it can because we all sin, a representative can bring blessing too. And the good news is that Christ's obedience was even more powerful than Adam's disobedience. So most of Paul's comparisons here, they use an argument from the lesser to the greater, and the lesser is Adam and the greater is Christ. In verse 15, he says, if those under Adam died because of his sin, how much more will those under Christ receive grace? Do you ever doubt that you're worthy of love? Do you ever doubt that you're worthy of grace? Well, this is a good doubt because you're not, but you shouldn't doubt that you could receive love. You shouldn't doubt that you could receive grace. You can because Christ is more powerful than Adam, if you know that you're a sinner, how much more can Christ make you righteous? He says in verse sixteen, "Adam's one sin brought judgment, which resulted in condemnation. But all of our many trespasses has have, have led us to Christ, who brings justification." Verse 17 outlines that if Adam's sin caused death to reign through sin, how much more will Christ's obedience cause righteousness to reign? We know that death reigns through sin. I mean, a lot of us are going to a memorial next week for someone we know and love. We know this. We need to know how much more. Will Christ's obedience lead to righteousness in life? Paul wants to call our attention to the fact that Adam was effective in bringing us harm as our representative so that we can be confident in knowing that Christ can bring help by being a better representative than Adam was. And since Adam was a type of the coming one, it makes sense that Christ, who is the coming one, would be more effective than than Adam and not less. And isn't this the hope that we need when we lose sleep over anxiety that we aren't good enough? Isn't this the hope that we need when we hurt someone we love and feel hurt and embarrassed, self-protective as a result? Isn't this the hope that we need when our quiet and hidden addictions prove to us over and over and over that we don't have self-control, that we aren't really moral, and that we aren't really good. Every day we give ourselves obvious proof that sin abounds in our world. And let me ask you a question. How is managing your sin going? Managing sin doesn't work. Is good advice making you holy? Are better techniques and more safeguards changing your heart? Listen, the law is good, but when people are sinners, the law simply makes their sin increase. It's not the solution it promises to be. See, not, not only does the law help us see more and more of sin, but something in us balks at rules. And when we find them, we just have this itch to break them, don't we? The good news is this, when sin multiplied, and it multiplied, didn't it? When sin multiplied. Grace multiplied even more. There's a lot of sin, guys, but there's even more grace. There's more grace than there is sin. And if the result of sin is death, what's the result of grace? The result of grace is life the same life that Christ got when he was resurrected from the dead. It's not a helpful story. It's not an allegory. Christ really died. Christ really rose. Christ really sits before the Father now, interceding for us, praying for us. If we love him, that's why. Grace results in life. And so we know what happens when sin reigns, but when grace reigns, life happens. And that's why we worship on Resurrection Sunday. That's why we're here on a Sunday, not a Saturday. We worship on Resurrection Sunday because life has overcome death through Christ's obedience. The prophet has said, death has lost its sting. We'll still all die because of Adam's disobedience, but death has lost its sting through Christ. Christ's obedience, fulfilling the covenant of works on our behalf, which Adam didn't fulfill, and we will never fulfill. Christ's obedience fulfilling the covenant of works on our behalf so that we can relate to a righteous God through the covenant of grace. That's what happened when life overcame death through Christ's obedience. This is the gospel. Although Adam sinned, making his descendants sinners, Christ obeyed and he died in our place and he rose again in righteousness. And if we're in him, we can die to sin with him and rise again to righteousness. And when death hits our bodies, we resurrect with Christ. He did not only pay your penalty. He did what Adam should have done, what we should be doing. He performed righteousness where it was required. And so that means that no matter who you are and no matter what you do, if you have faith in Christ, you have his righteousness by the merit of faith. And if you, have, if you have a hard time believing that, if you doubt that, just look at the sin in your heart. You have sin by merit of Adam's disobedience. You can have life by merit of Christ's obedience. And so if you're here today and you're feeling discouraged by your own sinfulness and your inability to change, this is exactly the good news that you need to hear. The gospel does not deny or excuse your sinfulness. It doesn't ask you to stop thinking about it. That's how we do a confession of sin every week. Man, we sin all the time and it hurts. And you start paying attention to it, it hurts more. And so we need assurance, don't we? We need to come to our Father through Jesus, naming the things that we're most ashamed of and receive his grace, know his love. Instead of denying or excusing our sinfulness, the gospel says, do you see? What Adam did, it wasn't theoretical. It was real. It had a real effect. And if that was the case with a mere man, how much more will Christ's work make you holy? See, a big part of healing It's not learning to deny or erase our worst experience, but learning to relate to these experiences in new ways. And, And Paul's doing something like that with sin in our text for today. He's not giving us a way out of feeling like sinners. And he's not denying the seriousness of what happened in Adam and what we've done as a result. Instead, what he's done is show us how the pain, shame, discouragement We feel when we experience our own sin can be proof to us that if Adam's sin was powerful to make us sinful, Christ's obedience was even more powerful to make us righteous. So don't deny your sin to gain hope. Don't get trapped in the distraction circle. Don't ignore your failings to feel good about yourself. God is coming to you today to redeem saying, you say there's a lot of sin. And listen, that's truer than you know. But there's more grace than there is sin. There's more grace. And so if we know this, we can repent freely. How much better would our relationships be, really, if we knew this? We could repent freely, confidently, with security, knowing that we're loved by our Father. If we know this, we can repent freely. We can find encouragement when we're downcast. We can look forward and hope that when Adam's sin brings death to our bodies, Christ's obedience will bring us life. And we can live as if this hope is truly truer than our daily desires, truer than our worries, truer than our shame. Church, sin has multiplied, but where sin has multiplied, grace has multiplied